Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. And like I said, Luke's Gospel, chapter 20, is where you want to turn, and I'll invite my morning reader up to come and read the passage. And why don't you stand as we read God's Word together? Good morning. Uh, Luke chapter 20, verse 45 and 21, uh, verse 4. Then in hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. And he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury, and he, also, <clears throat> and he saw also a certain poor widow putting in two mites. So he said, Truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all, for all these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God, but she out of her poverty put in all the lively, livelihood that she had. Thank you. You can grab your seat. <clears throat> I recently read a book about a young pastor beginning his career in this small rural country church, and he developed a friendship with an unlikely character who was 40 years his senior. It was a wealthy businessman who had business in the distant big city that had left him with quite a bit of financial resource. And that businessman invited this young pastor to come and to meet with him over a meal, and when they met, he ended up handing him a checkbook that was blank. And that checkbook was connected to a bank account that had quite a bit of money and increments of thousands of dollars available via that checkbook. And then the man said to the young pastor that what I'm asking you to do is in my absence, I want you to be generous with my resources to, to use them in a way that you think I would if I was present in the kinds of situations that you're in. You see, the man wasn't just busy with his business, but also he realized that this pastor had access to needs where he'd be in relationship with people and aware of problems or challenges in the local community. And so the man entrusted him with his wealth, saying, I want you to do for me what I would do if I were you in those situations, and I want you to be generous. And then I want you to come and meet with me a couple of times each year where we'll go away together to a nice restaurant and we'll have a great meal, and I want you to storytell and tell me how God used those resources, and I want you and I to take the time to celebrate together. And I'll tell you, it's a true story that as I started thinking about it, I was like, man, that sounds like a lot of fun, <laughs> like a pretty amazing experience if someone just gave me their money and said, I want you to do what you think I would do that would be very generous to help people around you. It sounds like a pretty incredible thing, but I want you to think something through. I actually think it's what our financial stewardship as a follower of Jesus is really meant to feel like, like a joy-filled adventure to see and celebrate how God impacts other lives around us through our generosity, because realistically, if you're a follower of Jesus, you view the resources you have as being entrusted to you. You hold, in a sense, a portion of the wealth of our great King, that all that we have belongs to Him. You see, we're stepping into a new year together and doing a little mini-series that we've entitled Growing Together. Because our desire is that if you're with us here in this new year as a church, that you would grow together with us in humility, that was the first week, in service, that was last week, and then this week we talk about in generosity. 
We're going to speak today about generosity as a joy. And before we really jump into the story that we just had read to us, I do want to pause for one moment to speak directly to widows and widowers in our church because this story highlights an individual like that who fits that description. You know, I've looked forward to speaking this morning about this widow, if nothing else, that I could just look out into the eyes of people who I know who are here who fit this description and just tell them how valuable you are to us and what an honor it is for us as a church to have you here. You're not just loved by God, but you are loved deeply by us. And to be a multi-generational church is a very unique thing, and it's a great blessing for our church, and it means that we have people like you as a gift for us, for us to serve, yes, but also for us to learn and grow from. And so we're so thankful that you are a part of this church, and I didn't want to miss my chance just to mention uh, our deep appreciation that you're here and a part of this church community. But in our text that just was read to you, there's two contrasting stories presented before us. There's the respected religious elite who Jesus here, and we, I wish we had time to get into the details of it, but Jesus really goes after them. In fact, in another gospel account, in Matthew's gospel, he gives a series of seven woes about these religious leaders. But here what you see is these respected religious elite enjoying their wealth and comfort, and then there's this little widow with no outward sign of God's blessing or favor on her life. You see, from the outside, people would look and say that one is doing it right. Oh, look at their external circumstances as proof of that, we'd assume, because look at their comforts and their opulence. The other, though, is failing, we would think, because look at their circumstances. Where's the blessing of God in her life? She must be doing something wrong if she's struggling this deeply. But that's just not the case. Really, these two stories... They, they, that we look at together here today, they present empty religion versus what Jesus is really after. And what he's after is the human heart. You see, there's a contrast here between the upper echelon and the broken religious system and this widow who is in the lowest rung in society and as such is the culturally least important and simultaneously most vulnerable of people in the first century. And yet Jesus will look at her and affirm and commend her for doing things the right way. And here's what you find in looking at this contrast of the widow versus the religious elite. What you find is self-sacrificial love in place of self-centeredness. You find faith in the place of control. And you find generosity in place of greed. And I think this is really what the gospel invites us into and frees us from. It's that we're free to love because we've been loved perfectly. It's that we're free to rest and trust because our God has proven his care for us. And we're freed even to be generous and open-handed because we know that Jesus provides for us. So the very foundation of the heart of what Jesus is after, there's three things I'll give, but this is the first one I'd love for you to write down, is self-sacrificial love in place of self-centeredness. This is the foundation of what Jesus is after, and I think what the gospel develops in our heart is self-sacrificial love in place of self-centeredness. What is the essence of Christianity? What's the thing that if it were taken away that the whole thing would cease to exist? Well, Jesus would answer and say that it's love. It's love for God, yes, but also love for your neighbor. Now, don't miss the significance of this. The motivator, though, in empty religion is fear and shame, and it's driven by terrible insecurity. Whereas the motivation found in Jesus' gospel is love, the tremendous, unmerited, undeserved, unending love of God for us, and the beautiful security that that creates for us. 
And this woman in this moment, she's demonstrating a love for God and for her neighbor in her gift of two little mites. As you may know, the priests had corrupted the temple in the first century, but she gave not to them, but in purity of heart, she's giving here to God. And in doing so, she's giving it to provide for the poor. These free will offerings that it seems like she's making here were used to provide for the sacrificial system and for the nation's poor. There's confidence here, though, that this woman seems to have to make this kind of a gift. It's a confidence that I believe was wrapped up in her confidence in God's promise of provision for her. The prophet Isaiah wrote it in Isaiah 54 so beautifully. Hear the, the word of the Lord, what it says. It says, do not fear, for you will not be ashamed, neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame, for you will forget the shame of your youth and will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. You see, when we view this woman's gift, although it was small, the smallest currency of that day, she's giving just pennies. We recognize that it was simultaneously massive because it tells you that it was all that she had. Which I'll tell you, that leaves us with a conflicted feeling for at least two reasons. The first is she's giving her last pennies to the place that's actually meant to provide for her as a poor person. But the other reason it leaves us so conflicted is because it, it just feels like it's too much then. If this is all that she has, to give all that she has, it just feels like it's too extravagant of a gift. Even if the size of the gift is small, she's giving everything she has. I mean, it's the same conflicting feeling we we come up with when we view someone like Abraham preparing to sacrifice his son Isaac, where we wonder, how could God ask for something so extreme, so massive? It's too much, we'd say. But then we realize, wait, this is exactly what God does for me. Is it he gives like that? It's how we feel when we see here this nameless woman giving away the rest of her money. She's all in and Jesus affirms her. And we think this is madness. This makes no sense. I mean, what is she going to eat today or tomorrow? What happens? This is too much, we think. But then in your Bible, in Luke's gospel, you turn another page, and that's when you realize that Jesus is headed to a cross. And that's where we say that, wait, this is what he gives for me too. He holds nothing back. You see, there's a transformation that begins, I think, in the follower of Jesus because of the impact of the gospel. Because of our experience of the incredible love of God for us, and that's that self-sacrificial love takes the place of self-centeredness. That love is our response to his great love for us. A love that's directed at God and others around us. But the byproduct of his love is the second thing. It's the second thing. It's faith in place of control. It's that we live by faith rather than fighting for control in our lives. It wars against my frantic desire for control. My faith does. Oh, picture the scene in our story where the Mishnah tells us about 13 trumpet-shaped chests that were set about in the outer courts of the temple in order for people to place their offerings inside of them. These massive metal horns would make quite a bit of noise as large amounts of coins were dumped into them. Picture yourself at the grocery store. I think it's called a coin star. Maybe you've walked by it before. Someone dumps the coins in. It's a noisy process. Amplify that even more so. 
Oh, but the end of a long day for Jesus and his disciples, where Jesus has been questioned about all sorts of things, what you find Jesus do is people watching, which I love. And we picture quite the scene being made as the wealthy come dumping in their coins into the treasury and making a big scene about it, in fact. Especially Mark's gospel seems to highlight that. But then things shift when a little woman in the most simple of clothing, such simple garbs that Jesus and his company around him instantly know that she's not just a poor woman, but she's a widow. They're able to see something about her that they recognize that this is someone who has nothing and no one fighting for her. They see her poverty. She's wearing it on her sleeve. And we don't know if she was old, like a frail old woman who emerged in the temple courts without a partner or an adult child present to walk beside her and care for her or provide for her. Or we don't know if she was young, a young woman approaching the temple treasury amidst all the pomp and splendor. The applause of the crowd is the, the wealthier dumping their riches in, their stockpile of coins into the treasury. And this woman, she approaches maybe holding just a child with another one attached to her hip and holding her hand. Wide-eyed and overwhelmed by what she saw, this young mom may have been without a husband, and that's a loss she's grieved, but her and her children then would still feel that loss every single day. Oh, we don't know the backstory, young or old, kids in tow or not, but what we know is this is a real human being who's in a very vulnerable state, You see, all we know is that in that moment, the sound that would emerge out of the metal trumpet that she approached would have been so slight that it wouldn't have turned a single head, except for one. As Jesus called the disciples to his side, pointed at the woman, as heaven itself turned to see this woman's faith and love. My friends, let me remind you that the Bible says that without something, it's possible to please God. And it's not without dedication or compliance, without money or power, without performance or perfection, it's impossible to please him. Your Bible says without faith, it's impossible to please him. My friends, God wants you to trust him. And it's clear from this woman's gift that what Jesus marveled at was not how much she gave, but really it was how she gave. Jesus seemed to take note of her generosity, not because of the size of her gift, we would say, but because of the size of the sacrifice involved in the gift. She gave in this moment the two smallest pieces of currency. 128 of them would equal a day's wage. It's the equivalent of about $3.12 or six to seven minutes of work for the average American, according to my math, so don't quote me. Listen, it doesn't sound like much because it isn't much until we remember that it was all that she had. In fact, I love the way that it's actually worded in the Greek language. In verse 4, it says that she gave all that she had her whole livelihood. The Greek word is bios there for livelihood. It's from where we get our word biology. In other words, it's everything that she was and everything that she had that she gave in faith to God that day. When she cast in those coins, you could say that she was really throwing her whole self onto God. It was her way of saying, I'm yours and I'm trusting you. You know, when I read Romans 12, give the admonition that you are to give your life as a living sacrifice to Jesus. I often picture this story, this woman, because she may as well have stepped into the metal receptacle, offering God her whole life and body when she threw in all that she had. 
Because throwing in those two coins was really doing just that. It was telling him, I'm throwing myself completely upon you. Now, you should know that Jesus is not trying to knock rich people here. He's contrasting those who are rich whose identity was their riches, those who flaunted it so others would see their wealth and opulence and even their giving, and and they would get attention for it. He's contrasting those rich people with the poor in a culture that believed that their poverty was probably a proof that God was displeased with them. And Jesus is looking to correct that as he contrasts the rich with those who have little, but what they have, like this woman, is God's attention and favor. Because, although she has little possession, she has great faith. My friends, the transforming power of the gospel works inside of us, causing self-sacrificial love to take the place of self-centeredness, to cause faith to grow up in us, in us, to take the place of our desire for control, and then it liberates us to live with an open hand and live in a third way. Write it down with generosity in place of our greed. That this is what the gospel is meant to do in our lives. That it frees us so much that we live with an open hand with generosity taking the place of greed. Now, don't get nervous here. This is not where I shake down the sheep for more money as a church. Um, But we are going to talk some about generosity. In fact, I'm really thankful that we can have this discussion while our church is financially stable and we're not in crisis. So... Don't get too nervous. In fact, I'll tell you, I listened to a sermon series recently that a a church that I have a relationship with, they taught a sermon series through on generosity and giving. For five weeks, they talked through it. And I so appreciated it because it challenged my own heart. But I so appreciated it because they did not use, how should I word it? They didn't use an improper motivation to lead people to a good destination. Like they weren't pushing their people towards generosity, which they did do effectively using shame or guilt or any funky tactic. What they tried to do is display that God has lovingly given to us, and so this is the the response of followers of Jesus, is to lovingly give to him. And that's what I have a heart to do. I don't want you just to take you to a good destination while driving you with an unhealthy force. That's not my goal at all. But I do want to actually start by taking a moment just to thank and commend many of you who do faithfully give to the Lord, in support of his kingdom work in our church and through our church. You know, I recently read a report that was looking back at, and I quote, surprising statistics regarding the North American church in 2023. And according to that article in DonorBox.com, only about 10% of typical congregation members regularly tithe. Another article I read said it's only about 5%. With what they found, they also are reporting that less than 15% of the American churchgoer, of the average churchgoer, less than 15% of them give on a monthly basis. It's nonprofitsource.com that reports that 80% of those who do give in church give less than 2% of their annual income. Vanco reports that the national average giving amount per churchgoer is an average of about $17 a week working out to $73.67 a month to a grand total of $884 a year that the average churchgoer is giving to the work of the ministry. Now, for us as a church, this is why I thank you, is that we had 124 different givers this last year with nearly 40% of them being consistent givers. And 60% maybe were more classified as infrequent tippers. 
Where three quarters of those who would be considered tippers who gave infrequently, they gave in that range, and I'll say it again, three quarters of those who gave infrequently gave in that range that this national survey found of about $17 a week that's mentioned, which is basically under $1,000 in a year. And personally, I don't know who gave or which category any person lands in uh, because I don't look at those numbers. I'm thankful that other people do. And then that a board treasurer looked at that information and was able to give me uh, some information to share with you. But what I'm thankful for is that although I believe we have areas to grow in this as a church community, undoubtedly, I'm thankful that there's signs of health that are already there. And so thank you for so many of you who do give consistently and generously. You see, as a church, for us, as we're looking at how we function and operate as a church, we want to be frugal, but not stingy. We want to be conservative in our spending as a church, but very liberal in our generosity. An example of that could even be that we don't have a building or an office that we operate out of. However, we give to missions and outreach at a rate of nearly six times what it was just a few years ago, where we've increased it dramatically. According to some statistics that I just read this week, churches in North America send around 4.5% of their income back out the door into mission and outreach. And as a church, we've been committed to generosity, so we blew past our own goal of 10% as a church that we would send out the door to local ministry partners and to international ministry work. By this last year, in 2023, sending over $92,000 out the doors of our little church into our local community and into the the ministries of some of our global partners. So I thank you. I'm honored that we've been able to see God use us here, but also see God use us other places as well. Those funds that over $92,000 have supported our partners in kingdom work, local partners through Crew and FCA on local campuses, Moms in Prayer, the local Crisis Pregnancy Center here in Poway, also our local partnership with the city, where we have chosen to steward our staff's time and some of our financial resources in having me function as a chaplain working for the city of Poway once a week. And then also they've gone to our global missions partners, four of which are in war-torn Ukraine, pastoring churches, while the remaining two reside in Ireland and our beloved the Jack family who are in Austria having departed this last year, uh, that we were honored to be their sending church and support them. All of this information and a lot more details about those partners is available on our website, and I'd encourage you to look at it so that you're familiar even with who our church partners with. Um, So hop on the website and do that. But I, I tell you this because in supporting our local church, you have also supported our local community outside of these walls, because we don't think you should just be paying membership fees at a country club. We think us giving is about kingdom work. In fact, scripture says that we are to be kingdom-minded as a first priority, and I think that's true of a church. And then it says that God will build his church. His responsibility, not mine, is to build this church. My responsibility as a shepherd is to be kingdom-minded and for us to use our resources in that manner. So I want you to know that these impact things in our community outside these walls and that God is, and it partners with things that God is doing in faraway places. I mean, this week alone, because of your generosity, we not only can gather here at Painted Rock, we not only can worship and be together, we also have nine home groups that launch right now, either last week or this week. And then outside our walls, just in the last week, and Miss Ruth, you can throw the first photo up, our church helped to underwrite the cost of a conference in Western Ukraine uh, that took place over the weekend. That conference now shifts to another church that we support in Slitvayok beginning uh, this afternoon which for them is almost 
tomorrow morning. Um, but I text with uh, both one of our partners and a friend who's there with this conference. They took counselors to do PTSD counseling for these Christian workers who are in a war-torn country. They took so these counselors, and then they also took pastors who went to provide pastoral care and teaching and shepherding for this group of people who have faithfully stayed and served, and some of them in very dangerous parts of the country. So 75 Christian workers and leaders in the country just over the weekend received care because of your generosity, because we helped to underwrite their expenses to be present and to cover their lodging and their food so that they could receive care from the body of Christ, and you were a part of that work. But even just this week at a local elementary school, and this is the next photo, we provided shoes for dozens of children uh, who were marked by their school as being either high risk or in need. And so our church was approached because of our relationship with the city for me as a chaplain, and they asked if we would help them to provide these shoes. And so thankfully, we were able to do it. There's one more photo of that, Miss Ruth, that shows the gang all together. And then also, uh, just this week, remember last Sunday we met, it was raining, and then on Monday it was pouring, and they're now calling it the 100-year flood, or I'm sorry, 1,000-year flood in some areas in San Diego. For me, I went to a fire station on Tuesday, having heard the night before that three local firefighters were doing swim rescues in neighborhoods in Barrio Logan, where water levels had reached over six feet, which is pretty wild. And so I started asking them details, and then because of our church having a relationship within Samaritan's Purse, on Wednesday then, I had a conversation with someone in the state of Texas, and by Thursday, they had flown reps out here to survey these neighborhoods in the southern part of the city that I was able to take and show around to see if they could get involved and that we then could potentially partner with them to put our shoulder behind them, not just our money, but even our sweat equity, we could call it, uh, to help some of these families in these neighborhoods uh, where their homes and lives are lost. It's pretty amazing. Actually, Ruth, if you go to the next photo, you can see there's a gentleman standing next to that white fence, and you can see the water line above his head. And to me, even this photo, the juxtaposition of a Happy New Year sign on the side of a house as people are optimistic about their future, and then within a few short hours, their house is halfway underwater. So I'm thankful that our church can be a part of what God will potentially do even in this city to help people who are suffering loss. You see, in, in our own church, God continues to provide through your generosity so that we can continue to gather each week. We have two paid staff members, myself and Olivia, Olivia Armitage, who's our our ministry director here at the church. And then because of that also, because of your generosity, we're adding a part-time worship leader beginning this next month, which is very exciting and something we've prayed together collectively as a church for. Um, he just led worship this morning, but we'll introduce him uh, to you with his wife next week. But Jesse, we're thrilled to have you. And then also it looks like we have on the horizon an assistant pastor who will also join our team to minister here, but also for us to be able to minister in a greater way in the community around us. And so I share all this to say, I, I would hope that you would pray and consider partnering with us in kingdom work as a generous giver. Because generosity, I think, this is what we're discussing, generosity takes the place of greed. Because greed's almost like a default mode for all of us. But please hear me, generosity is bigger than giving of your finances. However, your finances are clearly included in scripture's instruction for generosity. You know, I had a friend visit our church a couple of years ago, and he was here for three weeks, and he told me while he was here visiting with us that he kept thinking something's missing, 
and he couldn't place it. He couldn't put his finger on it until a couple of weeks after he had been here, he commented to me, what I realized is that I never once heard you mention money or an offering box or anything about finances. And I'll tell you, I really liked hearing that because I'm so sensitive to spiritual and emotional manipulation. So sensitive to it that it it felt great to hear that he wasn't hearing those things when he visited us. However, I need to tell you, on the other hand, I think there's a potential problem in that. And this is where I feel like I, I haven't done a great job and I appreciate the push of our elders encouraging me, not because of scarcity here in our church, but because this is a matter of discipleship. Because generosity is. Because the New Testament presents generosity as a matter of discipleship, not as an add-on. For some disciples of Jesus, specifically, at least for me, maybe for you, we think of people who make more money than us. That's who just generosity and giving is for. It's not for the rest of us. But don't miss this. Jesus began teaching in Luke chapter 6 what it would look like to be his disciple. And then he commented the same words that we read last week. Remember, words that he said when he stooped down to wash his disciples' feet and said, a servant is not greater than his master. Or he says it in Luke's gospel, saying that a, a disciple is not greater than his teacher. And of course, we know that Jesus, our master, our teacher, lived and gave generously. And in that same section then, talking about discipleship, he talked about giving, what it would look like to be a follower of Jesus. In Luke chapter 6, verse 36, he says, Give and you will receive. Your gift will return to you in full, pressed down, shaken together to make room for more, running over and poured into your lap. The amount you give will determine the amount you get back. You see, Jesus connected giving to the things that God is at work developing in our hearts as we become more and more like Jesus, as we become his disciples. Now skip ahead in your minds to later in the New Testament. In the book of 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, they're probably the most significant passages in the New Testament scripture regarding generosity and giving of our finances. If you're unfamiliar with that portion of scripture, I'd encourage you this week, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, great in your home group even maybe to discuss a bit. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 7 says it this way, but since you excel in everything, you excel in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in love that we have kindled in you. You've grown in these areas, he's telling them. He then says, see that you also excel in the grace of giving. Track with me. Jesus isn't the only one who does this because Paul the Apostle does the same thing. He connects giving to a matter of discipleship when he lists it amongst other areas God is growing and developing in each of us as followers of Jesus. He lists it amongst other things like our faith that's growing and our speech and conduct and love that also God is looking to generate in us a heart of generosity. Listen, we can understand why God cares about things like our faith, our love, our speech, and our conduct, but we can be really quick to call into question why God might care about my money. But please hear me, God cares about my relationship with money because of what money can do to me. Remember, money's not just a piece of paper with green ink. It's a placeholder for power and autonomy. It's often how we keep score in our culture. It unfortunately is quick to become the source of our identity even. It's often, in our current cultural moment, the source of our significance and our security. And therein lies the danger, because that is idolatry. Because the gospel is so countercultural, and Jesus, not my money, is now supposed to be my significance and my security, where I find my identity. Now, real talk, like, 
This is what we wrestle with, the tension of, of at times looking at what we have and God, what he's entrusted to us. We look at it and we see generosity often coming at the cost of security. If I bring to God and give to others what I could be saving, who's going to look out for me if I get into a bind or if I find myself in a pinch? You see, there's a real sense of security in having money saved, but shouldn't there be a greater security that is sourced in knowing a God that loves you and he says he wants to care for you as a father? Doesn't that provide security regardless of the number value in your savings account? And my point is not to tell you, like, don't save. Savings accounts are bad. Like, I'm not saying that at all. Having a savings account is wise. Preparing for retirement, also a very wise decision. My point, though, is for you and I, me included in this, to slow down and think about who or what gives you your sense of security. Jesus said it this way, Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and riches. Pastor and author Chip Ingram in his book, The Genius of Generosity, he writes, riches or mammon, which was this ancient deity that Jesus actually referenced in that passage, this deity of wealth, riches demands sacrifice too. Because wealth is not neutral. It is powerful and deceptive. It can seduce even the most sincere Christ follower and convince you that giving yourself your time and your money and love and generosity is just too big of a risk. Yes, I would tell you, have a savings account. But I would also challenge you, slow down and ask yourself if it is what gives you security and if fear is what keeps you from living a life marked by radical generosity. We might ask, God, why do you care so much about my money? He doesn't. He cares about the condition of your heart and your willingness to exercise faith. The real question really is, why do I care so much about my money? And why do I have a propensity to hoard my money? And why do I get all uncomfortable when someone in a church begins to talk about my money? Listen, as one author put it, he said, God has plenty of resources. He isn't desperately waiting for us to give ours. His desire is not to get our money but to get our hearts and to bless our lives. See, I found over time that the truth is that God and money both want my heart. And my attitude about my money may demonstrate which one has my heart. As author Henry Nouwen writes, he says, every time I take a step in the direction of generosity, I know I am moving from fear to love. You see, it's good for us, I think, to slow down and ask ourselves, if our security is our wealth, well, then is our God actually our money? Or to ask ourselves, if I viewed my relationship with my money as being a steward of God's resources, like that man in the story that we began with, would I be more generous with what God has entrusted to me? You see, the scriptures teach us that we are all stewards, not owners of what we have. What we have comes from God, it's given by the grace of God, and it belongs to God. I am just to steward God's resources. You see, while the world is using people to get things, on the other hand, we are to use things, Christians are to use things to get people. We are to steward our things to love on and bless and win people to Jesus. 
So that means we must be generous with what God has entrusted to us to steward it, whether that be our finances or our time, our talents and giftings, or even the gift of our physical presence that we can give to others around us. We ought to think generously and to live generously with those precious commodities and resources. Again, quoting from the book, The Genius of Generosity, the author writes, he says, if we want to understand generosity biblically, we need to see stewardship through new lenses. Less is a reluctant obligation and more is a thrilling opportunity. Stewardship is the path, generosity is the adventure. We move from duty to delight, from rules we keep to an adventure we share. We wake up in the morning wondering what we are going to do with God's time and how we are going to spend God's money. Now, why though? Let's just ask the why question because it's important. Why does God actually care? Why does he care about me living and giving generously? And there are three things I'll give you, and this is how we'll wrap up and conclude our time discussing this. Three things. Making the choice to do this, to give to God, to live generously, the first thing it does is it teaches me to put God first in my life and family. It teaches me, doing this teaches me to put God first in my life and family. Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 23 says it this way. The purpose of tithing is to teach you always to put God first in your life. You see, it takes faith to put God first, and there's no faith involved in me giving God my leftovers. But faith is what God is after. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9 says, Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. You need to understand, in an ancient agrarian culture, to give God the first fruits of your labor in the field or of the sheep in your flock was a serious step of faith. Because a single storm or a lone wolf could wipe out what would have come your way in the future, meaning you gave to God all that you got that year. Oh, it was faith to give God of our first fruits. I think I've got time to jump into this. The the term tithing is an Old Testament commandment. It it means tenth. A tithe is literally the word for tenth or 10% that I believe has a healthy echo into a New Testament principle. I do not, however, personally, this is just me personally, I don't believe or see scripturally in the New Testament a command for us to tithe, which I will tell you is hard for me. Not because I'm a pastor who lives off of your generosity. It's not because I eat and pay our bills off of it. That's not why it's hard. It's hard for me because as a follower of Jesus, I would love it if Jesus just gave me what I wanted, which is just a line. Like, just just make a rule, tell me what I got to do, and then I feel good when I've done it. Like, that's what I want. I really want Jesus just to tell me, I have to give a certain amount so that when I've done it, I know I'm done. But can I tell you, if I lived that way, that's not generosity. Because now I've given Jesus what's his and the rest is mine, and I'm not thinking of other people or living with an open hand. Jesus didn't give me what I wanted, which was just give me a hard line, a percentage, a number, and I'll go through it with that. Jesus instead exemplifies pretty extreme generosity in its place. And that example is harder to follow than a written rule because each day and each person you interact with is an opportunity to slow down and to pray and to be open to expressing generosity to them. And maybe you'd push back on me right now because you know that the tithe or giving 10% actually predates the giving of the law. When you, in your mind, maybe you've been around a Bible a long time and you're like, hang on, Abraham did this before the law came. And even Jacob gave a tenth of what they had in sacrifice to the Lord. Or you may even point out that at the giving of the law, that there are multiple tithes and offerings that some would say 
actually would have added up to about 20 to 33% of a person's income is what they were giving back to God in the Old Testament. And maybe you're thinking, let's not forget that Jesus also addressed the tithe in this very passage that we're discussing today, where in Matthew's account, Jesus mentioned the religious leader's meticulous tithe, and he didn't mention it to condemn it, but to call them to attend to what he called weightier matters of justice, mercy, and faith with the same kind of meticulous care. However, what I'd throw out there for you to chew on is that Jesus was addressing people who were still very clearly under the law. Which is why, in the previous sentence, before he mentions the tithe, he also mentions giving gifts on the altar in the temple, without clarifying that animal sacrifices were not a New Testament mandate for the church, because Jesus is yet to go to a cross where he will birth the church and even free the church from the law's curse and requirement. So I'll say again, my personal conviction is that I don't personally believe that the tithe is a New Testament mandate. However, I do believe that the New Testament does give a standard and expectation for how we should give. And sure, we could point to this story and say, I mean, look how generous this woman was. We could point to the widow who did not give out of her abundance, where giving didn't cost her anything. No, she was willing to give so generously that her generosity cost her and caused her to have to trust in God. However, if we said that this is the standard, we might be foolish on our part to assume that God is asking us directly to sign over the deed to all of our houses, or the title to your car, or the balance of your bank accounts all has to come our way. I'm not going to say that at all. But I'm confident that the kind of generosity he's asking us to embody, like hers, would leave other people commenting the things that we comment when we look at her story. That they'd look and go, I feel like that's just too much. That feels a little over the top. That's probably too generous. Listen, whether it's your time that you invest helping a neighbor, that's the response that we should be hearing. It's been enough. You've done so much for me. It's too much. Now you're too generous. Your presence that you give to the brokenhearted that you know and are around in your life, sitting with them in their sorrow, where they said, you've done enough. You've done more than I would have ever asked. You've been so generous. That's what we should be hearing or even your finances to kingdom work, or your unique gifting in service to others, that as you give, that that is the response of people who look on, that, oh, it's just too much, it's over the top. Listen, let me remind you what the New Testament says elsewhere about our giving. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul's exhorting the church in Corinth to be open-handed and generous with their resources in order that a famine in Jerusalem would not wipe out the church And that they would also give so that the kingdom work could continue to expand. Here's what he writes, and it's a great passage of scripture that I believe will pop up on the screen for you. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 6, he says, But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you that you always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. For the O'Keefe family, we want to give to God first, so we give on the first of every month. It's convenient because the internet age allows it to be an auto-withdrawal from the account, so we don't forget a checkbook. But the reason we do that is because God deserves my best and my first. And because we've learned over time that if we don't function that way, we inevitably run out of money before God gets his. Like a pie, by the end of the month, we've eaten away at all of the pie. The crumbs that are left maybe would make it into the box. 
But can you imagine, that might be what it looks like for a modern family, but can you imagine what it would look like in the Old Testament for this to play out? You as a family, you have sheep on a hillside and the sheep are pregnant and ready to give birth and the first of them goes into labor and the whole family runs into the field. But dad runs into the field with a knife. Because the firstborn lamb, he would take and kill and burn it as an offering to God. Probably a very shocking and traumatic event initially for a child to watch. Uh, I mean, you thought your family traditions were weird. Like this would be a weird one to grow up in a culture like this. Year after year, same thing every time. At some points, your kids would ask dad, dad, why in the world do we do this? And dad's response would be, because we haven't always been shepherds because we weren't always landowners, because we didn't always have livestock. We were slaves in Egypt, but God intervened and rescued us. And that is why we as a family gladly give to our God of our first fruits. In Exodus chapter 13, verse 14, this is actually what it says. It says, in days to come when your son asks you, what does this mean? Like, why do we do this? Say to him, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Why do we do this? Because our God has delivered us. Because our God has rescued us. Because God has done that for us. How could we withhold anything from him? Now, in my home, I want to have that same dialogue with my children. Thankfully, not with a bloody knife in my hand, but maybe a pen and a checkbook or just the internet and a laptop, where we tell our kids, we give of our first fruits because I once was a slave. And God freed me from that slave master at great cost to himself to deliver me. And then kids, look at what God continues to do, our good God, how he provides for and cares for our family. That's Riley, Keegan, and Declan. That is why we as a family give. You see, making the choice to do this, to give to God, it teaches me to put God first in my life and my family. And a second thing, this one's quicker. It reminds me that God is good and provides for my family. Yes, it puts God first, but it also reminds me, it functions to remind me that God is good and provides for my family. My friends, you cannot outgive the God who literally gave his own life for you. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18, it says, but you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you the power to make wealth. You see, I am returning to God what is already God's. Something really interesting you find in scripture is that God never says, give your offering or give your tithe. He always says, bring. Bring your tithes to the storehouse of the Lord. And it's because we really can't give what we don't own. And I am a steward of what God has entrusted to me, not an owner of it. That's true of all that I have, even of my finances. Oh, remember, please, that while the world is using people to get things, we as the people of God are to use our things to steward what we have to bless, love, serve, and win people to Jesus. And so for the O'Keefe family, Lindsay and I view our tithing or our offering as us returning to God what is already God's. And when we are faithful to do that first, it causes us to view the whole of our income then as being God's that he's entrusted us to steward. We recognize the 90% that's left is still his, but it's his gift to meet my needs and it's still his and his to use still to bless other people around us. You see, it reshapes the way that we view our income as a whole. It reshapes even the posture we hold it as a family because I think this is the work that God is meant to do in our lives. You see, what tithing then gives me far outweighs what I give God because it reminds me of God's faithful care for us. 
You know, I was making my way through a book on generosity this last week, and it referenced the story of this woman who really believed that God had led her to do something unique. And her words, she said she felt like God had led her to work like a doctor and to live like a nurse. To work like a doctor, but to live like a nurse. She decided to, to continue her work and earn uh, this paycheck of a prominent OBGYN while shifting the lifestyle and spending habits of some, to someone whose pay grade was significantly lower than her own so that she could live even more open-handed and generous with what God had entrusted to her. That is unarguably radical generosity that's willing to disadvantage self in order to love and serve and give to others. It's really beautiful. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, it says, what do you have that you did not receive? In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, it says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Oh, how can you steward, generously steward your time, your talents, and your treasure? You see, making the choice to do it, it teaches me to put God first in my life and family. It also reminds me that God is good and provides for my family. But the third and final thing is it also generates a heart of gratitude in my life and family. To give to God, it generates a generous heart of gratitude in my life and family, which I'll tell you wages war against materialism. You see, Scripture says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Choosing generosity with what God has entrusted to us safeguards us from the empty trap of materialism. I think that really gratitude is the internal root system that blossoms externally in generosity. Gratitude is. A heart that's full of gratitude towards God will produce a hand that is open in generosity towards others. You see, generosity, choosing it, frees us from the snare of the love of money, which matters because more never equates to enough. It's an endless cat and mouse game. It's a bottomless pit and an empty pursuit. But please hear me. Giving to God is not buying favor or favors from God. It's not buying favor with God or buying favors from God. No, it's a response It's our expression of love and trust and worship. And I would argue that giving and generosity has more to do with our faith than even with our finances. Because choosing generosity and to give, it shows the world that we're different. This is why it's it's more about our faith than even our finances. Because first and foremost, when we choose generosity and to give, it shows the world that we're different. It shows them that we're willing to love others, even in the ways, in ways that it costs us. It it shows that we choose to love like Jesus has loved us, even when it cost him. It shows that we are sojourners and pilgrims just passing through, that we truly believe that this is not our home and that the best is yet to come. There's a guy in the local fire service who asked me just a week ago, who I was engaged with because of the role of chaplain that the church is functioning in. He, He just asked me, he says, I don't understand how this whole thing works. People give money to support your church so that you guys can support us? And I said, yes. And so he said, why? I said, well, because we have a different paradigm for life. And that should affect our paradigm then for our money. 
Jesus said it this way. He said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in to steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I love what pastor and author Timothy Keller wrote about this passage in this really wonderful book called Counterfeit Gods. The book communicates that Jesus comments that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That he's telling us that you can easily discover your idols like a good sleuth or detective follows the money. If you follow your money, you'll find your idol hiding behind it. Here's how Keller says it. He says, your money flows most effortlessly towards your your heart's greatest desire. You see, Jesus seemed to indicate that your bank statement might tell us more about your heart than your schedule does or even your church attendance log. Because where your treasure is, there you'll find your heart. You see, it's not just that it shows the world that we're different. Choosing generosity and to give lets you share in the reward for the work that God accomplishes. There's a story in the Old Testament from King David's life in 1 Samuel chapter 30 where they're out on conquest because they've, pr- they've promised to protect a neighboring community. And while they're battling to defend them, they then get word of another attack happening at their home. And so they travel back fast, but there's some in the army who can't keep up. And they said, well, the way we travel faster is if we shed some of our resources and you guys stayed here with the stuff and we moved forward. If you could enable us to do that, we think we could be victorious. And they were just that. They were victorious. And the spoils of war, David made sure, were divided, not just with those who were sent or who went, but also those who stayed, that all shared in the reward. And then he makes a comment that this is how it shall be in the kingdom. And I believe that's how the kingdom of God still works, that we get to share in the work by us supporting people emotionally and financially who are out doing other things. I want to be a part of God's compassionate work with those who are suffering in Ukraine. I want to be a part of providing for disaster victims in our own city and to distant places like Turkey even. I want to see God move in our local school campuses through FCA and crew. I want women to be mobilized and empowered as disciple makers and prayer warriors like the Ministry of Moms in Touch is doing, or Moms in Prayer, I should say. I want to care for and assist unprepared mothers who are dealing with unplanned pregnancies in our own backyard. I want our missionary friends in Ireland and Austria to know that they're loved and that they're not alone. And I can do all that and more by supporting my local church. You see, choosing generosity and to give is an expression in the end of love, trust, and faith in God. Generosity is an act of worship. You see it in this woman's story, where she brings what is just an insignificant amount in the perspective of others, but what she had to give, heaven noticed it, and Jesus commended it. Oh, remember, please, the motivation for your generosity, the very reason that we'd even consider living as generous people is because God has already demonstrated his amazing generosity towards us, not withholding his own son from us. God has loved us with an amazing, generous love, and that is why and how we choose generosity ourselves. So my encouragement to you today is be generous with whatever God has entrusted to you because you and I, we are stewards, not owners And so we need to be careful and attentive that we steward well, whether it be our money or our time or the unique gifts and talents that God has given us. We've even seen over the last couple of years, the value even of our toilet paper stash to be a good steward of those things, to be a steward of our emotional involvement in the life of someone who's hurting, of our physical presence showing up in those hard moments, being a good steward of your home, opening it up to give people your gift of hospitality, creating a space for them to belong and know that that they are known and cared for. Oh, remember the words of Jesus that it's more blessed to give than to receive. And making a choice to do this, to give to him, 
teaches me to put God first in my life and my family. And it reminds me of my good God who provides for my family. And it generates a heart of gratitude in my life and family that wages war with materialism. My friends, we are not just preparing for retirement. We are preparing for Jesus' everlasting kingdom. May the stewardship of our time, talents, and treasure reflect our professed belief in that reality. You know, I'll tell you, our money does talk. And what what does how we treat our money, handle and steward it, really say about us? The amazing thing, though, is that heaven talks too. And what the gospel tells us is that we're far worse than we had imagined while simultaneously being far more loved than we'd ever hoped or dreamed. You see, the reason we'd live generously with every resource we have is because God has lavishly loved each of us. And because of that, generosity is meant to take the place of greed in our lives. And so, Father, I thank you that although this is a challenging thing, that this is such a healthy and freeing thing for us to discuss. And so I'm praying not for guilt or shame or pressure, but I'm praying for joy and peace and comfort freedom as each family takes time, as each person takes time this week to consider what you have entrusted to them and how they are to steward their time, treasure, and talents, that they'd steward them well and be generous, that that would be the reputation of this church, of being a generous place where people say it's too much. You all are too good. Father, develop this in our hearts. God, for any person who's here today, even as a guest or visitor, or just evaluating and considering Christianity, I pray that what they would hear more than anything else is the generous love of God that's given for us. God, we aren't motivated by fear or shame or any other toxic thing that drives us even maybe to a good destination. Now, our motivation is the love that we have received, the wonderful love of a Savior who gave himself for us. And so, Jesus, we thank you that you have given us much. We're realistic knowing that we live in a beautiful place and that we have resources that many around the world do not have. We're praying that you would give in us a heart of gratitude for what you have provided for us and that we would be a people of faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.